This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming to our talk and give us the opportunity to tell you about our research. Um, a big thank you to the, all the people at the Birch Aquarium who have been fantastic. And it's also, I want to say that it's a great pleasure and honor to be here at the Jeffrey Graham Lecture, who was a big uh, mentor and friends of both of us. And um, today we're going to tell you about this uh, a project that we started about uh, three years ago, but we actually started developing six years when we, ago when we first met, and we just met here at Scripps. Uh, David is a coral ecologist, I'm a cell biologist, physiologist, and we said it would be great to work one day together. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what we're going to tell you about is me, well, I'm Martin Trasgueres, I'm a cellular physiology, those are pictures of cells. And I'm going to leave you with David, who's going to give all the introduction about coral reefs and, um, and more the macro scale. Right, so I'm a coral reef ecologist, and I've been uh, studying coral reefs for the last 20 years. And I've been on, working on coral reefs all around the world. Um, this is an image of a, a really healthy coral reef in Bogus del Toro, Panama. And you can see that corals take a variety of different shapes. Um, and they can look quite different in different parts of the reef. Um, this is another reef in Bogus del Toro, Panama. And you can see within one reef structure, there's a number of hiding places. There's a huge diversity of organisms living on, around, and underneath the corals. And associated with the reefs, there's an incredible diversity of both large species of, of fish, as well as small species of invertebrates. And around the world, there's 800 species of corals, and it's been estimated that there's between one and three million species of organisms associated with coral reefs. So they're really an incredible ecosystem. And besides their beauty and their diversity, why should we care about coral reefs? Why, why in our normal day-to-day -day life, why should we really worry or think about coral reefs? And there are many reasons to care about coral reefs. They provide a huge number of ecosystem services. Globally, there are over 500 million people in coastal communities that depend on coral reefs for their livelihoods. As I mentioned, they're incredibly diverse, actually representing about 25% of the biodiversity in the ocean. They're actually economically incredibly important. They raise billions of dollars um, associated with tourism and fisheries. And then they also prevent, uh, protect land from storms and wave energy. So they do all these services while only covering 1% of the ocean floor. So they're an, an incredibly important, beautiful ecosystem, but unfortunately, Reefs used to look like this all around the world, and over the last 30, 40 years, many of the reefs are declining and being lost. And in this lecture, we're going to talk about some of the stresses that, that coral reefs face, but they face the main stressors they face are global threats associated with rising CO2 in the atmosphere, leading to things like global warming that causes mass uh, coral bleaching events. The increasing CO2 in the atmosphere also changes the chemistry of the oceans, leading to a process called ocean acidification. And then there are also local stressors like pollution, development, runoff. Um, and all of these stressors together are partly why the reefs are, are degrading all around the world. And we're hoping that through our research and, and collaborating with other researchers all around the world, will find new ways to bring these damaged reefs back to their healthy state. So in my research here at Scripps, I take a variety of approaches for studying how stress and particularly climate change impact coral reefs. This can include single stressor studies done in an aquarium where I work with single species of corals or, or different reef organisms and look at the effects on the individual organisms. I also do these community studies where I set up mesocosms, which are basically these artificial communities that represent the communities that occur on a coral reef. And then we manipulate conditions such as pH, temperature. Um, I also look at sites that naturally have variability in their pH, temperature, pollution levels, and, and try to learn um, how the corals are different between these sites. 
And then I've also developed some new technologies that are basically underwater time machines where we take these controlled experiments and bring them onto the reef itself to get a better understanding how corals and reef communities deal with climate change. And so I wanted to give you a little bit of um, a teaser of what some of this research looks like. This is some of the work I was doing with those coral communities studies on the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. We set up four, um, four different scenarios, a pre-industrial condition, present-day scenario, kind of a middle-of-the-road CO2 emission scenario, and then a business-as-usual scenario. And we looked at how these communities of corals and algaes changed over about a four-month period. And what you can see is that, especially in the business-as-usual scenario, that the corals start to die pretty quickly after about a month, and they get replaced by macroalgae, while in the pre-industrial conditions, the corals are all looking good and growing more quickly. So by doing these sorts of experiments, we can visually see how reefs will likely change depending on the amount of CO2 emissions um, in, in the atmosphere. And so to get a better understanding of, of how this works, we're trying to, trying to develop technologies to move away from the aquariums and do these experiments in situ. So these coral protophose experiments, or free ocean carbon enrichment experiments, are like aquarium studies that you actually do on the reef. So you have a network of sensors that are powered by wind and solar energy. And with this um, sensor network, you have feedback control of dosing of either pH, temperature, or pollution to be able to create future scenarios and see how the corals and the coral communities are going to change in their natural uh, environment. And I just wanted to highlight that I'm currently building one here in San Diego, right off the Scripps Pier. And hopefully this summer, um, we'll start these new underwater time machine experiments right here at Scripps. Um, and, and I hope that in the future, next time you visit Scripps, you might be able to take a tour of our underwater um, experimental facility that, that we're currently developing. The final area of research that I want to introduce you to is we're also finding new ways of surveying coral reefs. This includes developing new types of imaging technologies that incorporate things such as fluorescence that can give us an indication of how healthy corals are um, before they're visibly bleached. We're also teaming up with computer vision scientists, um, the Greg Mitchell's photobiology group and the Jules Jaffe Lab for Underwater Imaging. And in this project, we're using machine learning and facial recognition technologies, much like you use on Facebook, where Facebook can recommend your friend's name when it sees pictures of your friends multiple times. Our system can do that in images of coral reefs at a very high accuracy, and it can speed up the analysis of the millions of photos you get when you're surveying reefs globally by about 10,000 times. Um, but in all these research projects, one thing I've always wanted to know was how it's affecting the corals all the way down at the cellular um, level so we could start getting at mechanisms. My work has been really focusing on the individual corals and the coral communities, but I really wanted to know how the corals were actually functioning all the way down at the cellular level. And luckily, by working with Martine um, Trescaris, we have been able to start uh, making that transition all the way down to the cellular level. David. So yeah, that's what I do for, for my research. I, I have a lab here at, at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, which uh, includes students, grad students and undergrad students, postdocs and visiting researchers. And we're trying to do is we try to understand how marine organisms work at the cellular and physiological levels. We work with a variety of organisms ranging from these tiny algae called diatoms. I've been trying to understand how they uh, do the photosynthesis, how they synthesize lipids and, and other things like that. We also work with sharks and fish trying to understand how they sense and, and, and regulate their blood pH. We also have some other experiments with fish trying to understand their neurobiology and behavior and how that might get affected by uh, different uh, environmental stressors. And more recently, I also started working uh, on coral cell biology and physiology. And something that was very striking was how little we really know about how cells, uh, how coral cells work at, at that level. We know very, very little about how they calcify, how they do photosynthesis, how they maintain the, their, their symbiosis. And I personally find that just fascinating just in itself. 
But uh, in addition to that, I'm going to argue that that information is absolutely essential when trying to understand the fate of, of coral reefs. Um, and just, I, I will give you just a, a very simple example. Imagine that you want to fix something. Let's say that your, your car broke down and you, you take it to the mechanic and, and you want to fix it. Well, you can only fix, or the mechanic can fix the car because the mechanic understands and knows how the car works when it's working properly. So now something goes wrong, we can go there and try to fix it. Another example comes from biomedical sciences, and this, I have two examples here. To try to understand and cure cancer, you need to understand how cells divide when they're healthy. And another example, if you want to look at the diabetes, you need to understand how the pancreas works, how the insulin pathway works, pretty much for everything. If you want to fix something or, or even improve it, the, some essential piece of information is to understand how it works when it's working correctly, when it is healthy. And that's some of the things I've been trying to do with corals. And uh, in addition to corals, that's what we basically try to do with, with all of these organisms that we have here. We have cells from diatoms, corals and other invertebrates, sharks and hackfish and bony fish. We try to understand how their cells work, um, their mechanisms for metabolism, calcification, or what, what, what they're doing uh, in, the, in their everyday life. Then try to extrapolate that to the whole organism, in this case a coral or a little fish larvae. And then with that information, hopefully we can, uh, in the future, try to uh, predict and, and, and improve practices related to fisheries and aquaculture, coral reef conservation, algal blooms, biotechnology. Uh, the concept is very simple. It's just understanding how things work are, is an essential step to be able to fix things and to improve things. So different from David, who works at the more larger scale, I work at the microscopic world. And hopefully, when you finish this, this talk, you're gonna, I'm going to convince you that this is an amazing, amazing world to, to look at. I'll give you some reference for some of the things I'm going to show you next. So if you imagine your fingernail, that is one millimeter thick. And then we use another measure, which is micrometers. So that is 1,000 micrometers in thickness. So that, that's, that's pretty thin. Now, in that space, you can probably put uh, maybe something like 50 to 100 cells. So cells are very, very, very small. Just to give you another example of something you will be familiar with, this is a high microscopy picture of a human hair. And a human hair is uh, roughly between 20 and 200 microns. So even smaller than or even thinner than, than a fingernail. So have, remember that as a frame of reference, because we're going to be talking about corals, but we're going to be talking about coral cells, which are about, in about this, this range. So let's take one, one step back, and let's imagine how we go from these amazing coral reefs, which are huge and you can see from space, all the way down to the cellular level. So imagine if we're coming down from space, first into an island, let's say, in the, in the Pacific, and then from there we can zoom in a little bit more, into a near-shore coral reef environment. Then we keep going a little bit further there, and this is a coral colony, something that m most of you would recognize. But then we can go further in and zoom further in, and then we'll see that the coral reefs are made of these animals called polyps, which are like tiny little anemones. And these uh, tiny little anemones are all connected to each other. And when we keep going further in and further closer, we see that it is made of coral tissues, that forms their tentacles, their mouth. They have this communal gut that contains, that communicates the whole colony. And those tissues are made of cells, like every single animal in this planet. Now, the cells in the coral are not all the same. It's just pretty much like our cells are not all the same. We have some cells in contact with the seawater. Uh, we have other cells that contain the symbiotic algae that allows them to live from photosynthesis in uh, tropical waters. And then we have other cells, for example, these ones, very thin cells that are uh, in contact with the skeleton and actually are involved in secreting the skeleton. So we have these massive coral reefs that are made by a very, very thin organism or a group of, of animals. Now, as you can imagine, studying this uh, thing is not, is not trivial, and that's why we had to develop uh, new techniques. And um, in particular, what has been very helpful to study coral cell biology is this, um, it's called immunohistochemistry, or it's using antibodies to label where different proteins are located in different cells. And proteins are very important because proteins are what determine the function of a cell. 
And if this technique sounds familiar, it's because we use this in biomedical sciences for biopsies, diagnostic, and also to try to understand how cells work to then be able to treat and or cure a disease. So how do we use these things? You can imagine that you have, this is your, your coral, and then this represents different antibodies, which have these fluorescent tags. And when you apply them to your corals, if uh, they might label cells in contact with seawater or cells that have symbiotic algae or other cells that are in contact with the skeleton. And based on their location in the different cells, we can start to try to understand what, what they're doing. Something located in the symbiotic cells is most likely involved in symbiosis and photosynthesis, and something in these cells in contact with the skeleton are more likely involved in calcification. And then we can keep designing experiments trying to really look at their functions and the how corals survive, how they do the skeletons, how they do photosynthesis. But now let's translate this into, into the real world. This is a very nice cartoon, very nice animation, which is actually part of an exhibit that is, you can find uh, right behind this presentation. But then let's look at the, real, at the real coral section. It looks like something like this. Here would be the, where the seawater would be. Here is where it would be the skeleton. We're doing here a, a cross section over, over this coral colony. And then we can see with these different colors how the blue is, is labeling cell nuclei. And then the red and green are looking at different proteins that are located in different cells. So, but again, very importantly, what I want to give you again is the sense of size, how this microscopic world, this happens at a very, very small scale. So if we put this in comparison with the human hair, in this case, it would be roughly the thickness of five human hairs put together. Some of them might be three, some of them might be ten, but they're very, very small um, organisms, yet they produce these amazing reefs, and we know very, very little about their, their cells. So what are some of the things, how, how the results look like? Well, we found um, some of our results, they found this, these proteins that are present in that, in that cell layer in contact with the skeleton, and we believe that those proteins are involved in exchanging nutrients and, and, and carbon or CO2 with, with the seawater. We have other proteins that are surrounding the symbiotic algae, and we know that those proteins are involved in regulating photosynthesis by their symbiotic algae. And then we have other cells here in this, this calcifying uh, calcifying cells, and the, the, the label in red is a protein that we know it's involved in calcification. So it is something very, very small at a very small scale that at the same time it's very important because it can make a whole coral reef. And we're only just now starting to understand the details. Now when we're talking with Davey about this, this, his research and mine, something that was quite evident is that there was very, very, a lot of excellent researchers doing research in coral reefs. But what was very essential was uh, collaborative research that can integrate the pieces of the puzzle um, and to evaluate things from a molecular and cellular level all the way up to the, to the ecosystem level. And we were um, lucky enough to get uh, funding from the National Science Foundation to do just that. We started uh, studying cellular physiological mechanisms and trying to see how they are uh, relevant from the lab all the way to, to the field. Again, just I want to stop you, I want you to stop for a little bit and, and realize how um, these, these very diverse groups, ranging from very small scale to very large scale, we're trying to put them together. And that is something very novel and at the same time quite challenging. So in the presentation, what is left of the presentation, we're going to give you some details about uh, ranging from cells and tissues in corals, trying to see the relevance for a, a, a coral colony. From there, we're going to explain how we do uh, test the effect of single stressors, such as temperature, CO2, or, or light. Then we're going to go and try to look at all of these processes in different reefs and different depths, trying to see if there are differences between species and between reef environments. And finally, we're trying to go and, and explain or try to, to address these questions, but at longer time scales of, of, of not days or weeks, but about more like years. Great. So now we're going to give you a little bit of an idea of the process that was involved in doing the research. And the very first step was figuring out where we were going to do this work. Um, I did my PhD here at Scripps, and about half the time during my PhD, I lived down in Panama at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute 
because Nancy Knowlton was my advisor and she, she had been working there uh, for many years before coming to Scripps. So I thought right off the bat, all right, why don't we go to Panama, which is this isthmus here between the Caribbean and the Pacific Ocean, and particularly, why don't we work on the Caribbean side um, in these islands that are called Bogus del Toro, where the Smithsonian, or STRI, the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute, happens to have a research station that's really great for doing field work. So this is what these islands look like from the air. This is the um, STRI field research station, which has really incredible facilities um, for doing field work on the reefs um, around Bogus del Toro. And now that we figured out where we were going to work, the second step was to get all our research gear there. So we had to take several planes from San Diego to Panama. Here this is our last flight um, from Panama City to the islands of Bocas del Toro. This is Lauren Linsmeyer, one of the graduate students who worked on the project. But part of the challenge was we had over 20 suitcases worth of research gear that we had to get there. So one of the biggest challenges right off the bat is how do we get it in multiple taxis so we can get it to the station? And when we finally got all this gear to the station, this included different environmental sensors, all the gear that Martin needed for the cellular physiology, all our, our field equipment, dive gear, and um, the special equipment to bring the samples back to San Diego. We finally got it to the lab um, at, the, at Bogus del Toro and we filled the lab with our boxes. And, but we were so relieved to have all our gear there. Martin first decided he'd pose with all the, the research gear. And then I thought this was such a good idea. I had to get in on the act. And then we had to get a shot together because it was so impressive that we actually got the gear to, to focus. And by the end of it, we were feeling a little overwhelmed. We were feeling a little like this three-toed sloth <laughs> wondering what we could do next. So <laughs> we caught our breath and then tried to figure out what, what we were going to do. <laughs> so the third step of the process was figuring out which coral species to work on. So most people think of corals as just one organism, but there's real diversity within corals that have really different responses to environmental conditions and that um, respond in very different ways. So this is one of the species we chose. This is Orbicella franksi. This is a boulder star coral. This is a massive coral that can build colonies the size of a large room and can be up to five to 800 years old, one of the bigger colonies. So it's a really resilient, slow-growing colony um, or slow-growing species of coral. We also looked at Parides asteroides, which is a mustard hill coral. This is a much faster growing coral. It's considered a weedy species and it's actually taken over on many reefs throughout the Caribbean where other species have died out. And then the third species we decided to work with was a cropper cervicornis. This is a branching coral that's actually the fastest growing coral on Caribbean coral reefs. These corals used to be the dominant shallow water coral throughout the Caribbean. But unfortunately, around the 1980s, they suffered from a disease called white band disease, and over 90% of them have been lost throughout the Caribbean, and these corals are now on the endangered species list. So we thought it would be a good coral to study so we could hopefully find some new ways of trying to bring this species back. And by choosing these three very different species, we'd, we'd hope we'd get an idea of the diversity of responses that corals could have to environmental stress. And now the next stage in our research was try to figure out where in Bogus we wanted to work. So we wanted to choose two very different sites. So we chose a lagoonal site and an open ocean site, thinking they would have very different environmental um, conditions. And to really characterize these sites at a really large scale, at, at about the kilometer scale, we collaborated with Andreas Anderson, who's a professor at Scripps, who's a reef biogeochemist. And we set up these kilometer long grids where we would sample at each of these yellow points every day multiple times over several weeks so that we'd take water samples and really do a detailed analysis of how the, the chemistry was changing across the reef. So we did this at the lagoon site. We also set up a grid at our open ocean site that we call, that's called Crawl K so that we could really get an understanding of how the chemistry differed between these two sites. To follow up on this, we also deployed suites of instruments that would get higher resolution information on the order of every 10 minutes for several weeks at a time, 
right at the locations where we were studying the corals. So we'd install the instruments. This is an instrument developed by Todd Martz here at Scripps. It's called a CFOX, and it measures pH, oxygen, salinity, temperature, and depth. And we installed the CFOX around the corals where we were working, along with a suite of organisms, a suite of sensors, including a flow sensor, a light sensor, and a chlorophyll sensor, basically to try to characterize the key environmental conditions and see how they changed at the place where the corals were actually living. So after doing these surveys and deploying all these instruments, to summarize, basically we found that our lagoonal site had relatively high pollution. It had high levels of um, nitrogen-containing pollutants. It also had lower light compared to the open ocean site. So you can see in this video, there's a lot of um, suspended materials in the water which lowered the light levels. And that's because this site is in this bay that has about 100 different rivers flowing into the, into the bay, bringing in sediments from the land. And it also had more variable pH than the open ocean site. So this is what our more open ocean site looks like. This is the shallow part of the, the reef. This is about um, two to three meters. Here's the deeper part at about eight meters or about 25, 26 feet. Um, the light was higher at this site. Not surprisingly, this was exposed to the open ocean and it was flushed regularly. So it had lower pollution and it also had less variable pH. So to summarize, our two sites had quite contrasting environmental parameters. This kind of enclosed lagoon site had higher pollution, lower salinity related to rain um, sticking around in, in the bay, and also highly variable pH. The open ocean site had lower pollution, more typical open ocean salinity and lower pH variability. And we also looked at the sites at multiple depths. So we looked at the very shallow three meter part of each reef, so at about nine feet depth, and the deeper part of the reef at around 26 feet. And we found in the lagoon site that the highest pH variability was in the shallowest water at about three meters depth. And then at the deep site, there was lower pH variability. In the open ocean, there was quite low pH variability at both depths. And we also, um, found that there were key differences in light between the two depths, which isn't surprising. But we found that in the lagoon site, that at this eight meter site, there was about half as much light as in the shallows. Same was true at Crawl K, but light levels were um, about 20 to 30% higher than in Punta Caracol, than in the lagoon. So there was some really big contrasting environmental conditions between these two sites. So just to do a little recap, by now we have two coral reefs which are in both in Bocas del Toro, Panama, but they have very different characteristics in terms of salinity, temperature, light, pH, yet both sides have the same coral species. So the next question that we wanted to address is, is something in their cell biology that allowed them to adjust to these different conditions? Uh, so let's, let's look at that. So... This is, in, in, again, in the Lagoon site in Punta Caracol, and that is um, our student, Lauren Lins Mayer, waiting to collect the samples. And you can imagine us, underwater doing scuba diving, trying to get these coral samples, which then um, eventually we have to process, process uh, fix them in these special solutions that allows uh, us to bring them back to San Diego and look at their corals in the microscope. Now, this is one of those moments when, when we were there in Panama, and we're like, yeah, we haven't thought this very well because uh, when we do this in San Diego, we have corals in these coral tanks, and then I can simply reach, get the corals, cut them in fragments, put them in the fixative, and process them for microscopy. And I have to stress that it's very it's essential to, uh, after you sample them, you have to put them in the fixative right away because you want to look at the cell biology at that precise moment in time. If you waited... 20 minutes or an hour, there's the possibility that things might change, and what you're looking at is not, does not reflect the coral biology, cell biology in the field. So what we did is we ended up developing this method for sampling, sampling corals, uh, which involved um, Davey and I scuba diving on the, on the reef. You can see, start seeing our, our outlines there. And then we're collecting the, the corals, we're uh, cutting them and putting them in pre-label bags, 
And then a snorkeler, which in this case is Trevor Hamilton, is coming down to collect the sample, coming back up to the surface, in which uh, he would then go and give, give those, those uh, samples to Lauren, who's in the, in the boat, ready to fix them right away. The whole process took maybe 15 to, to 20 seconds. Um, this was a lot of fun for the first 100 times. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we, but we did this approximately 250 to 300 times, so of course we would take turns and, and, and things like that, but uh, it was still fun. <laughs> uh, and then at that point, we were able to, now that we know that the samples are, are frozen and fixed and they're ready for our, um, the, the next techniques, then we were able to just ship them from, uh, or take them with, back with us from Panama all the way to San Diego, and then look at the microscope and try to understand and try to see how the cells are uh, behaving. And what we're going to show you next are some, some results, some preliminary results that we've been getting. Um, just for orientation, what we have here, again, this is 100 microns, so that is roughly one or two human hairs in thickness. You have this would be where seawater is, and then these are all different cells. And I want to draw your attention to this red label, which is a label for a certain protein that we believe is involved in moving protons in and out of cells. And we see how in this sample from, from the depth, from the deep, so, so about 24, 24 26 meters, uh, feet, sorry, we see that label is in the cells in contact with seawater that is completely absent in this area of the tissue where, is where the symbiotic algae are present. Now, in contrast, when we look at coral from, from shallow waters, so from about nine feet, we see that the same protein, it is present, is almost completely absent in the cells in contact with seawater, but instead we start to see a lot of this proton pump in the cells that contain the symbiotic algae. So okay, this is the two corals, uh, two, two corals of the same species living on the same place but at two different depths, but then when you go and you look at their cells, they're, they're following completely different patterns and doing completely different physiologies. Now, obviously, because this protein is in the, in the, symbiotic, in the cells that host the symbiotic cells, we believe that um, it might be related with photosynthesis. And because we're coming from different depths, the, the first idea is that maybe uh, just light is what is affecting this, the expression and the function of this protein. And here is another example of how science sometimes is, it can get complicated because, yes, it's true that the, the, the corals are the different depths, they, are, they have different light levels, and it's true that that is a very logical explanation, but it's also true that there are many other things that are changing in a coral reef that we cannot control. They may be, for example, different animals living in one place or the other, or they may be different effects of uh, pollution, or uh, maybe it's just different uh, oxygen or CO2 levels. So to really try to uh, narrow down at the effect beh uh, behind these differential responses, we had to do what is known as uh, just single stress experiments, which is just grabbing one thing at the time and looking at the effect on coral cell biology. So to give you an idea of how we do these single stressor experiments, um, giving you the example of how we manipulate light and try to keep all the other conditions the same, this is the seawater system at the Smithsonian Station in Bocas del Toro, Panama. It's this really great flow-through system with a lot of aquariums where we could do our research. And you can see there's this big roof that takes out most of the light. So we couldn't do our experiments under the roof, so we were stuck. How, how can we do light experiments if, if the light under the, in the aquariums under that roof are way too low? Well, we pulled out our, our, our MacGyver skills, got some, got some duct tape and some cable ties, and what we did was we said, all right, let's extend the plumbing. So we took the plumbing all the way out so that the aquariums could be exposed to higher light levels and so that they weren't shaded by the roof. This took about a week of a lot of swearing and getting soaked in seawater, but eventually we had a system that worked, um, and we had these replicate aquaria where we could put the corals. But we wanted to see, recreate the conditions of light that occurred at the shallow and deeper part of the reefs. So we used these special neutral density filters on half of the tanks that reduced about half the light to produce the light level change that occurred from about three, meter, three meters depth to eight meters depth. 
So here we have the three meter conditions in the tanks without the filters. And then in the eight meters depth, we have these neutral density filters all around the aquarium so that we could produce this deeper eight meter conditions. We then put corals um, from the different species in these tanks um, and ran these experiments for several weeks at a time. And what happened with the cellular biology? Did it back up what we learned when we sampled the corals from the field? So we're starting to get those results now, but it's too early to give you an, uh, <laughs> a clear answer. So we'll, we'll say, hold on for now, but the results are coming. Um, but at the same time as manipulating light, we also looked at several other single stressors. So in this case, we also manipulated CO2 or carbon dioxide, um, which influences the pH of the system. And the way we did that is we use this computer-controlled pH stat system that measures the pH in the seawater and then adds CO2, pure CO2, into these big aquarium to produce future levels of CO2 as well as having controls that were uh, at current day levels of CO2. This seawater was then pumped into the replicate aquarium so we could see how the differences in pH affected the, the coral um, cellular response. And as I mentioned, we did this over several days and nights. To run these experiments, you've got to keep the corals healthy so you're cleaning the tanks you're taking measurements of the seawater, you're, you're studying the coral's physiology and its health throughout. So after about two to three really intense weeks, we then could sample the corals and, and see what's going on. So yeah, well, we were there working day and night and my family was thinking I was having a nice vacation in Panama, swimming and scuba diving with coral reefs, <laughs> working about 18 hour days. <laughs> and. Um, at the, but then, uh, as part of, the, of this protocol, obviously you have to check that the different conditions, so you have to measure them and make sure that, that everything is constant and that there's nothing that goes out of, of the parameters that you want to control. And as part of that, one of the things that we were measuring uh, several times a day was oxygen levels in each of these, of these tanks. And one um, unexpected finding that we uh, found was that the, the coral tanks that were exposed to elevated carbon dioxide levels, they have uh, routinely higher oxygen levels compared to the control tanks, which were exposed to normal CO2 conditions, and also to empty tanks that we were using as another source of control. So if you look at the black and, and, and red lines, they have certain levels of, of oxygen um, around the corals, but then the ones in high CO2, they always have higher oxygen levels. Furthermore, we found that in certain days that it was particularly cloudy or even raining, under those conditions, the oxygen levels in the tanks, they were all the same regardless of, of the experimental treatment. And then in other days in which it was more sunny, the levels of carbon of oxygen in the, in the, in the CO2 corals, it would spike out and the difference with the control was even higher. So what we're seeing here is that we might, while we might see an effect of carbon dioxide on, on, the, on the coral physiology and cell biology, the effect can also interact with uh, an essential parameter uh, such, such as light. Now, to really make sure that this effect uh, of, of light was in the corals and not in you know, surrounding phytoplankton or algae that might be growing around the, the, the tanks, the next step we did is we, just, we took the corals from the tanks and then using a very thin oxygen sensor, it's called an oxygen microsensor, we would position it right on the boundary layer or right on the surface of each of the corals and then we measure oxygen levels again. And what we found is, again, that in the corals exposed to high CO2, they had about 25, 20 to 25% higher oxygen levels compared to the control, the control corals. Now, why do we think this is important? Why do, did we get so, so interested and so exciting? Well, let's, let's go back now and try to see what's going on inside of these of this coral cells and these coral tissues. Well, as, as, I, as I explained at the beginning, this cell layer, which is um, uh, the second cell layer from seawater, contains the symbiotic algae, and algae do photosynthesis. So when you have light, algae do photosynthesis, which involves pulling carbon dioxide from the water uh, creating oxygen as a, as a side effect, uh, and that's why it, when you, we have more CO2 and more light, we were able to see more oxygen in the tanks. 
But another, some, another very important consideration is that photosynthesis makes uh, food in terms of uh, sugars, lipids, or, or proteins. And this is, in fact, one of the main uh, reasons why corals can survive in relatively poor nutrient waters of the tropics. Uh, and that is because they can do photosynthesis and create food within their own tissues using the, the symbiotic algae. So what are the next steps? This is, again, this was a completely unexpected finding that shows how times in science you can have everything planned and then you have a, an unexpected result that can steer you into a new direction. And that's something that we're looking at now. And one of the things that we have developed to study this in the future are, again, biomarkers or tools to try to look at uh, the potential effects of this phenomenon. So for that effect, we have developed these tools to that allow us to measure at glycogen. And glycogen is very important because it's a store of sugars. And also, using microscopy, I don't know if you can see there, there are some cells that are granulated. They have that very, uh, those globules in their, in their, in their, in, inside their cells. And we believe that those are lipids. So by using these two, these two techniques, uh, we plan to go back and now look at the effects of, of carbon dioxide and light and other stressors on their energy stores, which, of course, is, is very important. So why, why this would be very important? Well, we all know that ocean acidification is predicted to be uh, bad for coral reefs. Uh, but then what if, as a side effect, some corals are able to obtain more energy about, uh, during, during elevated CO2 conditions? Of course, it's not that simple, because at the same time, uh, the, the key question is, Maybe that, that maybe some, some species might be able to obtain more energy that they have to, to, to consume, and uh, that might determine why some coral species are more susceptible compared to others. At the same time, maybe having too much food or having too much oxygen might lead to an imbalance in the symbiosis that might result, for example, in, in, in coral bleaching. And another question that came uh, for, from these unexpected results was uh, these experiments were about two to three weeks in duration. So what happens under longer timescales? What happens in the periods of months or years or, or, even, or even longer? So in the final part of our research that I want to um, talk to you about is an attempt to try to do these experiments for a longer period of time. And the way that we did that was transplant experiments where we moved the corals between our lagoon and open ocean site reciprocally. So we took the open ocean corals, moved them to the lagoon site, took the lagoon corals, moved them to the open ocean site. And this is how we did it. These are the frames with the three main species of corals we were working with. And you can see next to the frames are, so this is a light sensor with a wiper, Here's our CFOX. They're the sensors so we can monitor the conditions throughout the transplant. So we reciprocally transplanted these corals and left them there for a year. But how exactly do we transplant the coral? In the pictures, it looks quite easy. The reality is something very different. The first step was we had to make these frames. So again, we kind of took on our MacGyver skills, got, got some PVC cutters and tried to figure out the right materials to use. So we made these PVC frames, covered them with this plastic chicken mesh, and had to make um, about eight of these frames. We then had to make the coral tiles. So we got nice and dirty, made this special um, coral cement built out of sediments um, from the reef, and made tiles, and made lots of tiles. <laughs> we then had to collect the corals without damaging their tissue at all, and then epoxy them onto the tiles so we could then take them out to the reef. So here's what they look like. Here's the epoxy where they're attached to the, to the tile. They each get a, a specific tag so we knew which coral colony they came from and from which site and depth. And then they would get distributed on these frames, attached to the frames, and then, as I mentioned, we'd put a series of sensors on the frames so we could look at the conditions over the year-long transplant. And so we, did, we completed these, these experiments last year. And unfortunately, I can't give you any <laughs> really exciting results yet. But I'll let you know that we, we are making progress on those samples. And we hope to have a, a, a story that complements the other things that we have found very soon. So yeah, no, it's in a sense a little bit disappointing that we cannot give you all the answers here, but I, I will invite you to see it from the other point of view, and it's that to our knowledge, this is the first time 
ever that we, these techniques have been combined doing experiments in the field, developing biomarkers to look at cell biology, pretty much like, like medical sciences look at diseases, and trying to go from a scale of cells to reefs and also from short term to longer term. Um, we started this project about three years ago and uh, we've, we've made significant progress, but there's still lots more to do. Uh, hopefully, in a year or two, we'll be able to give another lecture with, with, with some of these answers, so we'll have to stay tuned for that. So, as a summary, uh, through this NSF grant, we're able to go all the way from cells and tissues to corals to effects of single stressors such as light, carbon dioxide, and pollution. And we're currently trying to see what that means, what the cell biology that we look in the lab, in our test tubes, and in our microscopes, if that, that's even relevant for, for the field. And then we try to use that information to go um, then to longer time scales. And the overall idea is to just use these um, cellular techniques to understand how corals work and how different sources of stress might, might affect them. So why, why, are some, why do we believe this is so, so, so important? Or, or some, some of, some, what, are, what are some of the closing remarks that hopefully you will take home from, from this presentation? Well, number one is that generation, generation of new scientific knowledge can take a long time. Uh, I would argue that in the last two and a half years that this project, that project took, we've done a, a lot of progress, um, and, but there's still a lot more to do. I would also argue about the importance of knowing the basic mechanisms, because by knowing how things work when they're healthy, we can develop myomarkers, you can, we can see how the cells and therefore the organisms respond to those stresses. And what is even maybe more important is that once we know how they respond and how they act, we can use that information to predict how different stressors might affect coral reefs and also try to identify species that might be more uh, susceptible or, or resilient to, to, to environmental change. Another take-home message is how important and how essential it is to integrate multiple approaches and scales. I, before this, this, this uh, project, I, yeah, I, I, I like to snorkel and, and scuba dive, but I, could have, I, I, I would not have known how to do any of these things if it wasn't for, for Davis' expertise on how, going to the reef, from like building, building tiles, making frames, having uh, pre-labeled bags, and measuring all these parameters. And likewise, Coral, uh, Davey would not have known where to start if I, I was telling him that corals have different cell types, and so how, how does he study that? So that's why this partnership is so novel and so, so um, important. Um, and uh, uh, of course, the, the long-term or the medium-term uh, idea and goal would be to use all this information for coral risk conservation and, and management, but based on mechanistic approaches, pretty much how uh, medical sciences use information about cells to try to cure and, 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 and find uh, treat, treatments for, for disease. So just going to finish up. Um, also telling you that there's an exhibit here at the Birch Aquarium. We had one before from our previous grant from NSF. It's just around the corner on cell biology. And after today, with uh, the help of uh, especially Robert and Charlie and other people from the Birch Aquarium, we're adding a component, this field uh, component, uh, to the same exhibit. It's a nice couple of minute video that you're all welcome to, to look at. And just going to finish up um, acknowledging our, our labs, our sponsors, scripts, the Birch Aquarium, the National Science Foundation, the Smithsonian, uh, the Alfred Sloan Foundation, and also a big thank to all the students and collaborators that also help in this, in this research, specifically Lauren Linsmeyer, Mikhail Ortega, Angus Thies, Trevor Hamilton, Andreas Anderson, Tyler, and uh, Todd March. And with that, uh, I invite Davey back, and we can take any questions that you might have. Okay, I have a question. Uh, you mentioned pollution a couple of times. Over the past, what, 200 years or so, sophisticated man has thrown just about everything that they don't want into the ocean. Is there any kind of a uh, pollution index that you folks are building that compares the water of yesteryear to uh, current time, like you do pH or, you know, um, some sort of a pollution index? Um, there are some um, sensors, new sensors that are out there. Um, in, in our sites, the main differences were in ammonia and nitrate. Those were the main nutrients that were different between the sites. Unfortunately, on coral reefs, the levels are so low that most sensors can't pick them up yet. Um, but in the next couple of years, there's going to be cheaper sensors that are more sensitive that might be able to get at some of the information you're asking. 
And there's also studies using isotopes where they can go back in time and see, you know, 20 years ago, 100 years ago, even 500 years ago, how, how the nitrogen, are, uh, different nutrient levels changed over, over the different time periods. One more quick question. Uh, with respect to pH, you mentioned acidity. Isn't the ocean's roughly 8.2 or so on pH? Yeah. Right. Isn't that alkaline? Isn't, isn't oh, oh, it is. It's, it's just that it, it's becoming more acidic. So it's, no, isn't it less alkaline or not more acidic? <laughs> to be more accurate, yes. I was wondering, as you talked about the genetics of what's going on, in particular, there must be genetic variability within a population, different mutants, and maybe one is more tolerant to a stressor than another. So in the lab or in the field, do you see these things changing, like the relative proportions of the population shifting over time? And what does it say about the ability of the coral to adapt to the changes that are coming between pH and uh, pollution, temperature, etc.? Will, will they be able to stay in place, or will more tolerant other species replace them? So, yeah, the, definitely the genetic component is essential to any, all of these responses, uh, and there's a lot of really excellent research in, in that area. Um, the way we approach the, 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 the problem is we approach it from, the, from, from an alternative point, that is you cannot really do much uh, conclusions about their genetics if you don't know what their genes do. So we try to complement that type of research by trying to understand. We know that the genes make proteins, and then we're trying to see what each of these proteins do and, and in the context of, of a cell. So then in that respect, our uh, approach is very complementary because it would allow, it would give more background information to some of those uh, genetic studies. And then the other part of the question is uh, what happens in terms of adaptation and longer-term uh, responses, and that's, that, that is the key question. Um, unfortunately, the way we work with science, we cannot run an experiment for 300 years and see what happens. So the shortcut or the, the approach that we do is Again, by trying to understand how, how, how these mechanisms work, uh, then we can refer that and say the, correlate that to different genotypes or different genetic structures in different reefs. And putting together all that information, we will be more informed predictions based on these me mechanistic uh, uh, cellular responses. I was wondering if the PSI affects what happens to the coral as you get deeper. You're at three meters and eight meters, and so the pressure is going to increase. So does that affect how the coral reacts to these um, envir this environment? Um, so the question is, what, in addition to, to light and other things, um, when you're at nine meters or 27, 28 feet, you have 10 atmospheres versus in, of pressure because you have that water column pressuring on, on the coral, which is different from shallower water. Um, uh, that is a great question that I don't know if anybody is studying. Uh, there are a lot of great studies, some of them at Scripps, looking at organisms that live much deeper in the, in the ocean. And we know that when we go to hundreds of meters or thousands of meters, there are very specific adaptations in their cell memories and their enzymes that allow them to work under such great pressure. Um, whether or not eight, nine versus three meters is enough pressure to determine those changes, I, I don't know, but it's, a, it's a, great, a great thought. Well, thank you all so much for spending your evening with us. Thank you, Martine and Davey. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.